You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 49 for Monday the 6th of February 2017. My guest today is Keith Dixon, who's been writing since he was 13 years old in a number of different genres like thriller, espionage, science fiction and literary. He's the author of seven novels in the Sam Dyke Investigation series and two other non-crime works, as well as two collections of blog posts on the craft of writing. The first of his crime novels, Altered Life, is currently available in Portuguese and shortly in Spanish. The second, The Private Lie, is now available in Italian and soon in Portuguese. And his book, Actress, is available in, wait for it, Chinese, Spanish and Italian, and was also number one in the women's fiction free download section. When I spoke to Keith, I started by asking him what got him into writing at the early age of 13. Believe it or not, I think it was watching television and watching the Avengers, the original Avengers with John Steed and, and Emma Peel. Um, I just loved that show. And my first works were um, scripts for the Avengers that I wrote out in hand on an exercise book and sent in to uh, the producers. Of course, I never got a reply, but uh, it was it was emulation, I suppose. No, really liking something so much and thinking I want to be able to do that. Um, and that has been really how I, how I've continued to to write, really liking the stuff that, that I'm reading and thinking, I want to be able to do that. You know, maybe I can do that. When did the scripts turn into books? Um, I guess when I was about 20. Um, I'd been to law college when I was 18 and absolutely hated it. I, I deliberately flunked it. I wrote poetry on my contract law exam. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that'll teach them. Yeah, what a great process that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that by then I decided I wanted to try and make a go of it as, as a writer. So uh, I came out of law college in Guildford and I, I went back to mum and dad and I, I got um, kind of small clerical jobs that weren't too taxing. Uh, and for the next two years, I, I just wrote um, and I wrote seven novels in two years. You know, the energy of youth. eh? Wow. Uh, um, but they were they were a bit all over the place. You know, the first one was was um, homage to Frederick Forsyth, and the second one was an homage to Len Dayton and the the Harry Palmer books. And then I wrote a science fiction novel, um, and I I got an agent by by that time, the uh, the lovely Leslie Flood, and he was a science fiction agent. So I was I was sending him short stories and and this uh, this full length novel, and he did manage to sell her. A short story for me which was very nice um, and he took me to um, I was living in Coventry and in Coventry they had a science fiction convention um, and it was just after Star Wars had come out and uh, the first movie and he took me along to that so I met some some famous writers and I saw the producer of Star Wars walking down the staircase and that will be a, uh, a treasured memory <laughs> yeah, well, Star Wars uh, the first Star Wars film was completely 
game-changing, uh, wasn't it, when that came out? It was such a big event. And I, yeah. I don't think we've ever looked back since then, really. No, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, and going to a science fiction convention, um, convention shortly after that had opened and made a huge splash. You know, it was it was great. So, I, you know, I met James Blish, who was a, a famous science fiction yes. author. That's huge. Uh, That's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, he wrote some of the Star Trek novelizations um, a bit later on. So, you know, that was fun. And I felt I felt I was even stuck in Coventry. I was beginning to be part of a of a writing community. Um, so, and then that was, uh, that was the third novel. And then I wrote another three or four, most of which thankfully I've forgotten. Um, and, uh, most of which were destroyed in, in a wet basement flood several years later, because this was, this was the time of uh, writing on paper. Obviously nothing was stored on, uh, on discs at that time. There was, uh, there was no, um, uh, no storage in the cloud or on a floppy disk somewhere. It was just paper. So thankfully, I think, um, most of that has gone. So your agent's name turned out to be a warning to you then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. Very prescient, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Unfortunately, he died. He, he was. Uh, he must have been in his sixties when when I got to know him, and he he'd been the agent for quite a few famous science fiction writers. Um, and he died probably two or three years after um, he started working with me. But he was a nice guy, a nice guy, nicer than he needed to be with a 20-year-old know-nothing from, from Coventry. <laughs> um, Can I just tie you down on the numbers then? So at that stage, they were, you were traditionally published? No, no, no. no. What, what did you got published at that stage? At that stage, I'd just got the, the short story published. I'd sent books. By gum had I sent books uh, to, to um, agents and publishers, but uh, not a bite. And in fact, Leslie, Leslie Flood was uh, a bit shocked by that. He said, you know, I've had success selling books um, from worse writers than you, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what's happening and i had nibbles you know i had nibbles of people you send as you know you send the the three chapters and and a uh, a summary of the of the novel and i'd had people saying yeah this is interesting send me the book the whole book um but it never quite turned into uh into final acceptance so um and by then I was now in my early twenties, and I had to start thinking seriously about what I what I wanted to do. So, um, eventually, I went off to college and did a, a creative arts degree, which was um, English with creative writing and drama. Um, and basically, I used that as an excuse to wag off and, and write for three for three years. Um, and so I, uh, I wrote some some short plays while I was there, and wrote the beginnings of, of a couple of novels and more more short stories. We have to remember that if you were writing that much in those days, writing was a very different process. Then you would have been uh, handwriting as you were when you were thirteen, or you'd have been typing on some cronky old typewriter. You probably weren't word processing processing at that stage, were you? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, my first typewriter, I, I was 16. I remember my dad going with me um, to buy a typewriter from, from somebody. It was one of those really old, um, like an Underwood or something, one of those big, tall jobs that you've had to practically stand on the keys to get it to operate. <laughs> um, and then I had a Smith Corona Electric, which was a nifty little machine, um, not much fatter than than a contemporary laptop, 
um, you know, with an electric keyboard, and that was that was brilliant. But um, yeah, and I worked with that for for years. I had that even through my my college years. But I did get into computers quite quickly. I bought an Atari. Um, it must have been in about nineteen eighty something like that, eighty eighty one maybe. Um, which operated with the television screen as its as its monitor, um, and the, the prototype word processing programs, whatever they were. So um, yeah, I got into into computing and word processing quite quite early in its history, really. I think it's always important to stress that uh, you know, for people who've been writing for some time, you've seen mm. some considerable evolution in the way that you actually do the job. Because it's, I think it's so much easier nowadays, isn't it, to, to, to bang out a book? Oh, absolutely. When I, when I was first writing on the old typewriter, and even on the electric typewriter, I guess, um, you'd type a page, and then I'd read it that night, and the next morning I'd make corrections. And, it, you know, rather than type out the whole page again, which was a tedious thing to do, you'd, you'd try and make corrections to the manuscript as it was, which meant feeding in the paper, finding the right space on the line where you could you could uh, tip X over. Do you remember tip X? I do remember tip X, yeah. <laughs> You could tip X over the mistake um, and line it up again, wait for the tip X to dry, and then type the correct word in. Um it was yeah, it was tedious beyond belief. But you know, it was it was hands on, and you 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 felt that you were you were getting somewhere, you were doing something, making something concrete. Um, so by the end of that process, by the time I'd finished a book, um, I used to rewrite bits and bobs. But I'd spent so much time focusing on what was on the page that there wasn't a lot of rewriting that I felt I I wanted to do. Um, and of course, nowadays it's com- completely different because I use um, I use Scrivener, which I'm, I'm sure you've you've heard of, or your your authors that you've had on before may have heard of, which is a um, a separate word processing package that it, it's more than just word processing. It's it's a program that can hold everything that you need. You can import graphics, images, uh, web pages into it, and and just organize your uh, your writing much more straightforwardly. I used to have boxes and boxes of notes, handwritten notes, of course, and now I don't. Um, even 10 years ago, I used to have boxes of notes, and now I don't. It's all on a computer program, which is backed up to the hilt <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the cloud. Now, um, one of the things that's already struck me about you is that you must be, you, you seem to be incredibly driven to write. It's like you can't stop. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, um, there was a period when, after I went to college, I came out and I did a, a master's in English lit at um, at Sussex University, and went straight into teaching. My old um, uh, tutor at college asked me if I'd like to do some teaching. I said, "Yeah, brilliant." Um, and so I did that then for six years, and I never put pen to paper. But I was dealing with literature every day. You know, I was I was still kind of in there. Um, and after that, the, the teaching began to um, uh, tail off because uh, I couldn't live on it, basically. The, the, they weren't paying enough. I wasn't full-time. I was, I was teaching in three separate institutions in the Midlands and the Northwest, um, and it just wasn't enough to, to pay the bills. 
um, it started with I, I wrote um, a play for a competition, Northwest Playwrights Competition, and uh, a subject that had fascinated me for a while, which was Isaac Newton. Um, who is, as we know, the kind of founder of rational, logical science, fact-based science uh, and rational thinking. Um, But he had an absolutely chaotic personal and private life. And I just thought that dichotomy between the two of them was really interesting. And so I constructed a play around that dichotomy and it, it, it won one of the, uh, the awards and was, uh, was produced in, in Manchester uh, and Chester. Um, and that that got me back in the in into the the swing of things again. I went down and lived in London for for six months and did nothing but but write, uh, living on some savings and and the doll, um, and then came back again up to the northwest to carry on teaching. But by that time, I'd really started uh, writing again uh, in earnest and. Eventually, it all came round again to writing novels when I was working um, in a consultancy. Um, I'd done my I'd done my secondary um, masters in organisation psychology, and I was I was working as a consultant in a company that that was expanding too quickly and in the wrong areas, and people were very dissatisfied. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting if someone decided to murder the CEO? <laughs> I think we've all thought that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, you know, he was, he was a nice guy. There was nothing wrong with him at all. It was just that the, the, the company was going through such a terrible time that was a lot of um, uh, morose people. There were a lot of morose people around and a lot of uh, bad feeling, I guess. And, and I just took that as the basis for um uh, for the novel and that became my my first um crime novel um because by that time um i'd had a boss when i was teaching i'd had a boss um a senior lecturer who would often go to america he had friends in america and he'd come back with suitcase bulging with crime novels (laughs) this is before e-readers um and crime novels that we haven't heard of over here people like robert parker and and um uh, a guy called um, oh crikey uh, Mar- um, not Marielle Balzic that's his character Casey Constantine who wrote fabulous dialogue um, and I just he used to lend me these books and I, I got into reading crime fiction in, in a big way I'd read I'd always read thrillers but I hadn't read crime novels per se and I was fascinated by these American crime novels with a heavy focus on character and dialogue in particular um, so when I was working then in, in this consultancy and started to put together the idea for um, a novel, I'd been, I'd been standing in my, um, in my house in, in Cheshire. We had a house in a small village in Cheshire. And we had an upst- for one reason or another, we had an upstairs sitting room. Uh, and I was just looking out of the window one day and thinking, what would it be like to be a detective in this area? Because I I used to go into crew occasionally on the bus, and if you go in on the top deck of the bus, um, you'd go past a furniture store, and above the furniture store there was a window that said "Private Investigator" on it. Oh, lovely! <laughs> and I always thought, since I was a student, I'd always thought, how interesting is that? You know, what does that person do? And so here I am, standing in my in my house, looking out the window, looking at the people walking up and down the street, which is very sedate. Cheshire village, 
next to the canal with a canal pub, thinking, what would a private detective be doing here? You know, what would it be like to be walking down these not mean streets? Um, and and so there was was born the uh, the idea of my my character Sam Dyke, um, who is a York, Yorkshire born like I am, um, but working in in Cheshire in the northwest. You know, Cheshire is some incredibly wealthy areas in Cheshire outside of, of London. You know, there's some of the wealthiest people in, in, in the, in the UK live there and work there. Um, and so the contrast between whatever Sam would bring with him from his, his fairly tough Yorkshire upbringing, his dad being a miner and so forth and working with and amongst these, uh, Cheshire wealthy knobs, so to speak. Um, and and that was that was the kind of basic idea for the character, and then the story developed out of that. Where are we in terms of chronology? What kind of year are we at where, you, where, where Sam Dyke appears in your right. head? Um, well, the start of the writing is uh, about 2001, I guess. Um, so that's 15 years ago, isn't it? Um, and it took me seven years to get that damn book finished. Um, <laughs> I wrote... I wrote the first 70 pages and showed it to my partner and she said, no, I don't like it. Oh, damn. Uh, uh, and like me, she read a lot of um, uh, crime fiction as well. So she had her head screwed on when it came to that sort of thing. So I had another think and rewrote. And and um, my problem was that in those days and when I was younger, when I was in my 20s writing the the novels, I would... I would wait till I had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then I'd start writing. I'd write away from the beginning towards the middle and then away from the middle towards the end, uh, kind of making it up as you go along, you know? Um, and I realised that, that that just takes so much effort and so much time because you, you come across something and, oh, my God, I've got to go back and rewrite those 20 pages. Um, so that's subsequently after that one, and I guess after the next one, uh, the private lie. Um, I, I changed my style and became much more of a of a plotter. You know this distinction between pantsers and plotters. Yes. You come across that. Yes. Um, had been a, a bit of a pantser, and now I'm a I'm definitely a, a a plotter. When you started writing that first book, then two two thousand and one, you said I think. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to think. We probably didn't have indie publishing then. I'm just trying to think what form it would have been in. It would have been. <laughs> maybe sort of Lulu kind of publishing, would it? Vanity publishing? Well, not quite. You're right. When I started in 2001, there was nothing. I I, I envisaged it as something that I would try and sell into um, uh, into proper publishing. Um, and that was one of the occasions where I got some bites, but not quite, you know, because Leslie Flood was, was dead by then, dead a long time, and, and I was sending it to agents. Um, and they liked it, but they didn't think they could sell it. Now, you know, you never know whether that is just agent speak um, and they're just being polite. Um, but a couple of them did ask to see the, the, the full novel, but it, it just didn't make it. Then by 2008, um, print on demand had come online through in the UK, specifically through Lulu. Um, and which is an American company, but operating in the UK and printing in the UK as well. Um, and I don't know how I came aware of that, but I did. And, um, 
I went online, I found out about it, found out how it worked, where you, you upload your text and you upload your cover, you don't pay a thing, um, and the only thing that's, that's paid for is when actually somebody buys it and then you get your, your royalty from the sale of the book. So um, I did that. I did that with um, the first two books were, were exclusively in, in paperback. I did have um, the first one, which is called Altered Life, I should mention. Uh, I did have that one printed as, uh, as um, hardback as well, but the printing costs for hardbacks are, are pretty excessive and you can't really get any kind of royalty on top of your publishing price without the publishing price being about 18 pounds you know which is pretty ridiculous really um it's just so expensive to 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 print hardbacks so um i did that and it it did reasonably well um i didn't make a fortune i I probably made three or four hundred pounds in the in the first year um which was okay you know i was in print i had a paperback on my shelves um it was it was in um, british books in print i used to go into into waterstones um and they used to have a monitor where you could search out a book and order it i used to search out the book and get its cover up on the screen so that it was uh, uh, it was in the store visible in the store and then i'd walk out of the store <laughs> <laughs> Passive advertising. I'm so pleased I'm not the only one who does that. I went uh, to, I was in Barnes and Noble in New York last year and I did exactly uh-huh. the same thing. I left the books on all the um, terminals. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to Brilliant. do what you can, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. And this is before Twitter and, and probably before Facebook, or Facebook may have just been starting anyway. Um, so yeah, that was, that was it. It was, it was going to be print on demand. There was a, a lot going on in that, in that field. And in fact, um, I was very active in the UK uh, site, I suppose, the forum, I should say, um, and because I'd been doing it a long time by then, you know, I was asking, answering people's questions and pointing them to various resources and so forth. And eventually I had a phone call from a lady in Spain, an English lady in Spain, asking if I wanted to work for Lulu. I thought, oh, this is, this is cool, yeah, a bit of extra money. Um, and it was basically just acting on the help desk, um, mostly through um, kind of on, online help, a bit of email response, um, but uh, no no telephone interaction per se. Um, so I did that for, crikey, it must have been a year and a half, I guess. And that was a big, a big learning curve about uh, publication of books and the problems that, that people were having. You know, when they have the problems, I'd learn from that and, and vow never to, to have that that problem um things like making making pdfs for your for your cover and flattening the uh, the images and so forth uh, all very you know it can get quite quite technical but I, I learned a lot through doing that and um and at the same time i was contacted um well the same lady angela in in her spare time she ran a, an online um editing company with her husband and she asked me if I wanted to do that so uh, which was essentially reading submissions and copywriting or not copywriting copy editing I guess and proofreading Uh, and again that's very instructive when you do that 
a lot and I was doing a couple of books a week for, for probably a year I suppose you know the mistakes that people say where the long uh, the mistakes that people uh, make the longers that that can occur how do you start a book how do you finish it how do you structure it and so forth um, and also I had a friend in Australia that I'd, I'd made through Lulu and she started her own small uh, publishing imprint and she asked me to, to be an editor to um uh, a judge and copy edit um, books that that she took on. So I did. I think I did three books for her as well in 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 that year. So it was all you know, all very useful stuff in terms of craft and technique for me to um, uh, to learn from. Unfortunately, to learn from other people's mistakes. But you've had a fascinating <laughs> writing career because you've you know you've started on an exercise book at a typewriter. You've been yeah. writing <laughs> at the beginning of the self-publishing revolution and then you'll have been there every step of the way as we moved from lulu to amazon to e-readers that must have been a fascinating mm. transition it is it is and it's interesting that you put it in that context because of course when you're living through it it's just oh this is the next thing that's that's coming up and it's only when you look back and you think oh yeah actually to be at the beginning of print on demand was was quite interesting um and then, you know, to be able to move on to Create Space, and uh, which is Amazon's version of print on demand, and, and know exactly how that's working and what's and what's going on, um, and and yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a big movement. And I know I, I wrote something um, the other day for Ally, which is the Alliance of Independent Authors, which I recommend to any authors. Uh, uh, listening to this um it's a fabulous organization um for independent and self-published authors and they have a they have a blog they have a website and they have a um a facebook page which is for advice and help um and uh, they asked me to write something about my success um in fact that may have been where you came across me paul right. thinking about it yeah. <laughs> um and uh i go debbie. stalking authors on the pages <laughs> that's what i do <laughs> um uh, debbie prefaced it um that my, my article by by saying you know that i was often on ally and um on the um on the facebook page giving the benefit of my experience and i thought crikey i, I suppose that's right because you know you never really think of yourself in in those hallowed terms but i suppose if you if you live long enough and you've been around long enough then you can't help but but pick up some um some information really so in terms of you were, you were very involved in the in the publishing industry in many respects how, how were the books going at this stage because you, you you've actually got seven uh sam dyke investigation uh yes yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the paperback sales trailed off as soon as um, e-books came along, and obviously, specifically, the Kindle. Um, I got into publishing for Kindle quite early, and it was great in the uh, in in the beginning. You could make you know three hundred to four hundred pounds a month very easily because people were buying Kindles and loading them up with with. Um, uh, with any books that they could find, really, uh, and even though I was selling quite cheaply at you know ninety nine p or or one ninety nine or something, I, I was making a, a decent living selling quite a few books. But then, of course, everybody else piles in <laughs> when it becomes evident that that you can make money from from selling eBooks, and um, and so sales sales 
uh, dropped off. And then the challenge is, uh, and all of the gurus were saying, what you need to do is write more books, write quickly and write more books. Um, and I, I took that to heart. By this time, when would we be talking? To 2013, I guess. Um, I'd given up on the uh, on the business consultancy um, after the crash of 2008. Uh, work was getting harder to to find. My company had been taken over by an American company, and uh, I wasn't altogether happy about the way things were panning out. So, uh, my partner said to me, "Look, if you want to be a writer, then act like a writer. Write." So, so that's what I did. I, I just gave up any kind of external work and just wrote so in that first year i wrote four books because you know let's face it that's all i was doing um and the idea was to to get as many published as i could so since 2013 i've written uh five i guess in the sam dyke series i've written a romance under a, a pseudonym and um a literary novel called Actress, and uh, just published the first in a new series called, uh, well, the, the main character is called Paul's Story, so it'll be story thriller series or something like that. I'm working on the second one right now. What then does a writing day look like to you, bearing in mind you've managed to write so many books in such a short amount of time? Sure. It, it, it varies on which stage of the process I'm in. When I'm researching... Um, you know, putting together ideas and researching, it's it's very kind of ad hoc. I'll get up and I'll I'll, I'll read the news. I'll you know I'll kind of faff around <laughs> for for a while. But at the back of my mind, all the time, in the in the back of my head, really, um, things are churning away about plot points and characters and what might happen to this person and what might happen to that person. And then eventually, it comes to the point where I've, I've got enough. Uh, ideas and stuff written down and just sufficient research to be able to start to solidify it and so the days then become a question of of writing out my my plan the first thing is actually a a mind map i do a lot of mind mapping to invent enough events and uh goings on to fill a book Uh, and then i put them into some kind of sequence some kind of logic um, and out of that comes uh, a more considered um, plan, which is first um, chapter by chapter uh, and then scene by scene. And for each scene, I have quite a comprehensive plan about not just what happens, but what the what character development happens in the scene. Where does it begin? Uh, where is it leading to at the end? You know, does it? Can I make it end on some kind of switch or or um, uh, a cliffhanger? Um, and that takes four to five weeks, I would say, for a for a full length book. And um, when that's finished um, in Scrivener, I've got that all in in one window pane in Scrivener in the left hand side. So scene by scene, I know what I'm going to write. So when I start writing, it's it's um, it's fairly straightforward. It's still fun, you know. People often think that if you if you if you're a plotter and you plan. Where's the creativity come in when you sit down and write? Well, first I have a 
I have a lot of enjoyment out of the the planning and the and the plotting because your mind keeps making stuff up as you're as you're um, working on it. And then when it comes to writing the scene, uh, I'm surprised by what characters say, <laughs> even though I'm writing the scene. And and that in itself can can lead to um, new developments. I try not to make them derail the plot too much, take it too far away from where I wanted to go. But it can change uh, a dynamic between people. And it can what I found often happens is that something that that is happening in scene 20, I have a sudden flash of insight where I can say, oh, my God, that's why this happens in chapter 60, in scene 60. So, you know, it's still it's still an ongoing creative process, um, and it's, it's, it's never dull. So when I get to the writing stage, that's probably another six to eight weeks of fairly concentrated writing. I set myself a target to begin with of a thousand words a day. Um, and then once I'm kind of motoring a bit, I up that to, to 2000, but I challenge myself to, to go over that. Um, and then I, in, from Scrivener, I compile it as an ebook so I can send it to my Kindle. And so, Last thing at, at night, I read what I've written in a different form to what I've written it in. You know, writing it on a PC and reading it in ebook form are, are, are different. So I can spot typos, I can spot spot infelicities or or um, things that need changing, and I I highlight them in my Kindle. And the next morning, the first job is to make those corrections and, and amendments. It gets you back into the book again. Um, Hemingway used to used to say, um, "Always finish in the middle of a sentence." <laughs> so when he went when he went back the next day, you know, he he knew where he was he was going because you just had to finish the sentence what does the editing and proofreading process look like to you then having gone through it yourself do you take to, take it to editors or do you do it all yourself i, I do do it all myself because i've worked as, <clears throat> as an editor and a proofreader um part of the work i did when i was um a business psychologist i, I dropped out of delivering for a while and uh, stayed in the office and wrote e-learning programs and i proofread and copywrote other people's writing of e-learning programs um and so and my actually my first first ever job when i was 18 was as a proofreader for rolls royce um so i've got quite a good eye for that kind of stuff you know i can spot mistakes on cornflake packets <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so now because i'm i'm working so hard on structure early on I, I like to think that the the bones of the story are going to be okay i'm not suddenly going to find uh, a, a massive plot hole um, or something that should have been foreshadowed or, or forewarned about earlier on because I've spent so much time thinking it through that that the, the bones and the structure is okay. And then when I've, I've written it, I'm a, I'm a pretty neat typist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a touch typist because I've been doing it so long and um, I, I don't make that many Errors. Kind of, it sounds like I'm really bigging myself up, but <laughs> a bit of self knowledge, you know. Um, uh, so then, when I I read it again at, at night and again the next morning, I'm usually picking up anything that's that's got through by then in terms of typos and that that kind of mistake. And of course, when the book's finished, I read it 
again as a as a proofreader um, and and pick up stuff that way. So, um, and if I could afford it, if I could afford it, I might send it to an editor. But but quite frankly, at the moment, um, I, I can't afford it. So that's that. Well, this is it. You see, you're in for quite a lot of money off them when you produce a book. Um, yeah, and you've, we haven't even got to the covers yet, of course. So, so how, how do you about, go about the covers? Where do you get those from? Uh, well, that's that's me again. Uh, when I was working um, in in e-learning, uh, as I just said, uh, we were working also with a team of, of graphic designers, and uh, I used to go and sit with them and watch how you use InDesign and Photoshop, and uh, uh, and learn some tricks from them. And there's YouTube videos galore about how to do anything. So uh, I have one or two basic design principles in my head from that time, and then the rest is just a lot of a lot of trial and error. And I, I will often uh, change my my uh, my book covers, um, my book recent book story was only published um beginning of october i think and i changed the cover um a month ago because i felt it wasn't uh, it wasn't impactful enough um but it's yeah it's it, it's just me really messing around and be- again because i know how to use the tools I, I, i'd rather do it myself than pay somebody to do it at this point in time and are you guessing um you are well. You are getting paperback versions done of those books. Um, yes, that, they, that could be a little bit complicated sometimes with the covers. So, are you using the basic Create Spaces, um, you know, and using their spines and their their coloured uh, back back uh, pages? No, no. I um, I have a kind of template which I which I've been using a long time in um, in in design and. All I have to change for that is the width of the spine, depending on how many book, how many pages are in the book. Um, so I take the basic front cover, which I will have designed for the Kindle version, then use that as the front cover of the paperback, and then do something to uh, to create the back page and the and the spine. These days, it's tending to be a, perhaps a blown up version or a, a slightly recolored, touched up version of the front cover because I see that happening a lot in um, uh, in commercially published books. Um, and then I just drop it into the into the template. Um, you have to fiddle about sometimes because. Create Spaces uh, cover manufacturing process. I don't think is 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 particularly hot because I know I've made covers that when you look at it in the in the virtual proofer online are absolutely perfect. The spines lined up perfectly and everything else is perfect. You get it delivered to your door and there's a bit of bleed. You know, there's the back cover bleeding onto the spine or the spine bleeding onto the front cover. And you think, how could that happen when it was perfectly lined up? So um, there's a bit of messing about to do. But to be perfectly honest, I don't sell that many paperbacks. So um, you know, it's not something that I spend an awful lot of time on. I get them ready. I order a proof copy. I check it myself, make some adjustments if, if necessary, and then I, I kind of leave it alone. Uh, unless, you know, if, if someone were to, to call me or email me and say, do you know these these books are absolutely terrible, the covers are really not printing properly, um, then that would be different. But selling one or two copies a month, as I do, of the paperbacks, it's, it's not worth the, the effort. When I look at your Amazon author page, 
there's yeah. quite an eclectic mix of books. So you've obviously got the Sam Dyke investigation stories, mm-hmm. which are very, you know, consistent in terms of their design and their layouts. But then you, yeah. you, you've, you've got what kind of goes against the indie principle of, you know, write in one genre and keep writing the same thing. You, you, yeah. You've got some others thrown in there. You've got things like The Idle Writer and Crime Writing Confidential in there. But why, why that eclectic mix? Why have you gone for that? Um, well, the um, the Idle Writer and Crime Writing Confidential are both collections of blog posts. Um, and the Idle Writer is the very first collection a year ago. And you're right, I should actually redesign that. That was designed, um, well, crikey, five or six years ago, if not more. Um, the Idle Writer, uh, sorry, the um, Crime Writing Confidential, I just like the cover. <laughs> so, um, it's, you know, it's hints at a kind of 40s Hollywood-ish Type um, type ambiance and and design and I just I, I just like it as a as a cover and it, it is distinct from the others. It makes it plain that it's not in the Sandyke series or or in the new series um, uh, because they're different things. You know, they're collections of essays, so they're different. But you also have actress as well, which looks like something uh, completely different again. It is yes. Um, Again, that's a new cover that was redesigned about uh, six weeks ago. Um, that's a non-crime novel, and so I wanted to uh, to distinguish it. Actress is in a slightly flowery uh, or more flowery font to to give it a, a softer edge because it's um, it's contemporary woman's fiction. Uh, I guess is is how it's best described. Um, and you know, there's no there's no point branding everything with the same brand when it's a, a completely different genre it just wouldn't be a, a, appropriate with the same branding as what's the I'm, others what i'm interested to, to dig into is why you didn't for instance go for a different um, pen name for those books uh well that's true um for my romance book i did i called myself k dixon K-A-Y, uh, <laughs> oh, right, <that's> <laughs> which you know is my uh, my initial from Keith, um, because I, I thought, possibly wrongly, that uh, a woman's name is more attractive to romance readers. Um, for the for the other one, you know, there's, there's an American author also called Keith Dixon, and he's commercially pro- published. He, I think he's an editor at the New York Times or something like that, serious writer. Um, and when I started publishing my stuff, his books kept popping up in my in my listings. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to have this. I, I'm older than he is. Um, I've probably been writing way longer than he has, so I'm not going to change my name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in a, in a way, I'm, I'm being a bit stubborn about, um, about that. And with, you know, with actress, for instance, um, I don't really mind. Well, you know, John le Carre did it. He's known for writing thrillers. Um, and then he broke away from that with, uh, the naive and sentimental lover. He kept his, his own name. Um, and it bombed terribly and nobody liked it, but still. <laughs> you know, I figure if you've got any kind of name whatsoever, if people are interested in you as a writer, then um, they may just cross-fertilise into other types of books that you read, uh, write. Interestingly, you've also got down the audiobook route. What has that uh, mm. experience been like for you? Uh, well, very good, very good. It, there's a there's a programme called ACX. It's a, it's a division of Amazon. Um, 
Amazon, I can't remember what it stands for now, Amazon something, something, Exchange, Amazon something, Exchange. Um, and there are two two routes you can go with it. You What you do is you upload your book and a, uh, and a, a synopsis of it and a description of the kind of voice that you think might suit it. Um, and then it can get either one of two responses. One response is that someone, uh, typically a producer, will say, uh, I want to do this, pay me £800, I'll find a voice artist and I'll produce it for you, and, and then I'll go away. And you, as the author, then get a larger percentage of the royalties. The other route is that someone, typically the voice artist, gets in touch with you and says, um... Well, you can pay me if you like, but if you like, that I'll do it for free and we share the royalties between us. Um, and they provide a, a sample of their reading of, of the first 10 pages or so. Um, and so that's the route I've, I've gone through. It's not, not cost me anything to get them. I've had actress done by a very, uh, a very nice lady, um, very well-spoken voice, which goes quite well with, with actress. And uh, the Sam Dyke books have been read by an American guy. Now, I had a, I had a few qualms about this because, uh, you know, Sam Dyke's from Yorkshire. <laughs> he, he doesn't talk with an American accent, and the books are written in the first person. But the uh, the guy Rob Rob Ellis he reads them with a real kind of American uh, Philip Marlowe esque um, accent and intention in them, and it fitted really well with the style because the style was to be um, uh, noir, a crime noir novel, but set in in the UK. So although he's talking about Wilmslow and, and Manchester and so forth, um, I don't really care. Uh, and also the fact that I figured a lot of the purchases of the book are likely to be Americans. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's nice for them if it's an accent that they can easily understand and, and um, acquaint themselves with. One of the things that I did notice is that you've had some of your books translated into a variety uh, of languages. Uh, so I've got uh, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian... Uh, and Chinese, for goodness sake. Yes. <laughs> How did this all come about? Well, the, the Chinese one is is uh, is a one off. One off. Um, there's a company called Fiber Read, uh, and they set up to translate books into standard Chinese. I think they call it. Uh, and again, it's a process of you upload your book, and then some translators will look through it and they say, I want to translate this book for you. And you say, fine. Um, and they produce a version of it, which of course you cannot understand because it's in Chinese cryptograms. Um, and that process took about a year. And I think largely the, the Chinese ones through fiber read are, are kind of crowdsourced. I, I have a sense that it's done by students who may have a chapter each or a few pages each or something. And there's a, there's a, an overall editor who brings it all together. Um, and they ask you to send your cover without the title and your name on it. And they translate those and put them on themselves onto the cover. So the cover for the Chinese version has got the, the old cover for actress, not the new one, because I, I, I can't find a way to get back in and, and change that now. Um, and they sell it through Amazon China and three or four other uh, Chinese outlets. Um, 
It's had some success. Um, it's number 50 currently, I think, in the literary uh, books uh, on Chinese Amazon, or Amazon China, I suppose I should call it. Um, so it, it's selling slowly. I would guess, you know, obviously what one hopes for is a uh, is massive pickup of your, of your book from a billion people in China. Um, the, other, the other ones are through a company called Babel Cube. Yes, I've heard uh, of Babel Cube, yes. How does that work? Right. It's a, it's a similar process. You upload your book. Um, uh, you used to be able to you, – you, you just uploaded your book and then you waited for translators to come to you and say, I would like to translate it. Here's the first 10 pages as a sample. Um, these days you can actually go out and, and choose. You get a listing of, of translators in a, in a given language and you can approach them directly and say, would you like to translate this? Um, I've, not, I've not done that yet because I've had, uh, had enough on my plate with the ones that, that have been translated. Um, and they're – it's interesting. I don't know how many translations I've had now, maybe five, six, seven, something like that. They've all been young women. Um, and I think what happens is that a lot of young women in, in Brazil and Spain and, and uh, um, wherever, are, um, Portugal, are going to translation school <laughs> um, or doing translation studies at university and they think this is a good way to get some experience under the belt and something on their CV to say that they've done book translations, and that's fine with me. It's the same process whereby um, I don't pay, they don't pay. We get a, a, a an equal split of the, um, of the royalties. Well, actually, I think they get a bit more up front to begin with, the first so many thousand sold, and then uh, as more books are sold, I begin to get a higher percentage of, of the sales. And so what does um, book marketing look like to you, Keith? What sort of activities do you engage in to get people to discover your books? Um, lately, I've done a lot of tweeting and automated tweeting just to build a profile of, of um, followers. I've just tipped over 6,000 followers last week. Um, I've also worked at building uh, a newsletter email list um and i've been using something called insta freebie which is quite good for that which is an online site whereby you you upload your book and you make it available as a as a free download for people um if in return they will give you their email address and that email address is automatically added to your uh, uh your newsletter email list so I've just completed one um, at the end of last week, and I picked up something like 600 uh, new members to an email list. I have tried Facebook ads. I did Mark Dawson's uh, course on, on Facebook ads. A lot of people are doing that these days. Um, and it's it's good, but it works best for, I think, for building an email list because, uh, again, there's a process whereby people look at your ad, they click on it, they go to a page, they can get a free download if they give their email uh, address. For selling books, um, I've, I didn't find it uh, worked at all for me, which is not to say that it, it 
it wouldn't work. You have to really have the soul of an accountant, I think, to make it work. <laughs> uh, because it means doing a lot of what they call split testing, where you put two adverts up, which are almost identical, but maybe the wording is changed in one, or maybe the image is slightly changed in, in the other. Um, and you see which one responds best from the audience that you're sending them to. And then you play with the audience, and then you play with how much spend you put on it. So it's a really... Uh, detailed and long drawn out process and to be perfectly honest um, I did that a little while and spent you know nearly a thousand pounds in all including the course um, and while I built my my newsletter list I didn't really do much in terms of, of sales and to be perfectly honest I'm more interested in writing the books than getting that far involved in the, um, in the minutiae of, of Facebook advertising I'm just interested to dig a little deeper into InstaFreebie because I use um, I use BookFunnel, but I think InstaFreebie yeah. is slightly different from that. Does, is there some kind of viral element? Because 600 uh, new subscribers is not to be sniffed at, is it? No. Well, what what happens? I, I know of BookFunnel, but I've never used it. I've never been to the site, and I don't know in what way it's different. But I know that with InstaFreebie, what what has happened is that um, uh, groups of people are now getting together for an InstaFreebie push. Um, and I was that was one I was in last week and a couple of weeks ago. I've got another one coming up in January. This is where somebody will organize a group of people and produce a landing page which has, let's say, 15 or 20 books on it. And all of the authors then publicize that like, like mad through their newsletter and through Twitter and Facebook pages and, and so forth. Um, people click on the um the link in twitter let's say they get taken to this this landing page and then they're confronted by 20 bucks and they can they can click on each one in turn go to the insta freebie site hand over their email address and download the book so it uh, and they can also share that link themselves in that sense it is viral you know they can just set, share it amongst their reading group or their friends or or whoever um and all then that people have to do is is hand over their email address and that is turning out to be very successful i think it's more than just one person pushing their own book it's like a big shop front for a lot of people where are you actually finding the partners to cross-promote with, Keith? Um, well, this came through Ally, the Alliance of Independent Authors. There is also a Facebook page. Um, it might be called Insta Freebie Push. Let me just see if I can find it. I've got my computer in front of me. Um, yeah, I've got yes, it. you got it. Insta Freebie Push and so much more. Yeah. Uh, and people, the one I'm doing in January was advertised on, on there. And so I signed up for it. Um, so there's a, a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And of course, you know, Insta freebie is new. Book funnel was new. New things are popping up all the time and as long as it's free i'm there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've just um, i've just requested to join that group that push group, <laughs> and i will put it on your resources page i'll put all these links you're talking about now because i haven't heard right. of fiber read before you know this is the, the the joy of speaking to different authors is i i never do an interview without learning a whole load of new things i didn't uh, know before so uh, they'll all go on your resources page keith so that people can access those without having to hunt 
for them. Um, Brilliant. So thank you for that. Thank now you. you you've been um, you are incredibly uh, persistent because you've been doing this for for a long long time now, and yeah. but also you've seen some amazing changes in your writing career. I wonder where where do you think it's going next? What do you think the next big change is going to be for you as an author? Personally, I'm I'm just intent on writing more books um and in a in a particular genre now the the received wisdom is that genres sell better than literary works and i think that's probably true i think what has happened over the last five to ten years is that uh, genre has become even more important you know genre was essentially in the olden days of bookshops essentially a place um or, or a reason for books being able to be slotted into bookshelves in a particular place in a bookstore. So you could walk to the crime or the horror or the science fiction shelf. Um, these days, with the cheapness of ebooks and the uh, plethora of, um, of books in any given genre, if you're a romance reader, you can, you can read four or five books a week and people do and it'll cost you 99p or 99 cents a throw um and my fear is that that books do become devalued i had um <laughs> i had a flood in my another flood uh in my um in my house in cheshire uh about four years ago i guess it is now from a boiler in the roof so it came down through the the house um and i lost something like two and a half thousand paperbacks and some hardbacks as a result of that. And that may be reconsider uh, a lot about, you know, what I, what I want books for. And there are, there are two, two things really. One is that they are nice objects to have on a wall. Um, and the other is that they are memories. I can look at a book and remember where I bought it or why I bought it, for what reason uh, I bought it. But in terms of, what I get out of a book, I can get that from an ebook as well as from a paperback or a hardback book. Um, and I think more and more people are, are, are moving that way. They keep saying, oh, well, you know, the, the days of ebooks are, are over and the sales are going down. I, I don't think that's true. I think sales of ebooks from the, the big five are possibly going down because they they're priced so highly but i don't think that um amazon and kindle would say that their ebook sales are are slipping at all hopefully what will happen and this is a long-winded answer i'm sorry about that hopefully what will happen is that people start to appreciate quality and uh books that are just banged out there by people who who haven't really studied their trade and worked at their their trade will stop selling um and that people will start to find quality again you have a very good presence online could you just uh, finish mm. by telling us where the best places are to connect with you and to find out more about your writing sure um the best place is probably um Twitter and Facebook. So my my Twitter handle is at Keithy D six. So that's Keith Y D six Keithy D six. Um, my Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Sam Dyke Investigations. Uh, the website is uh, KeithDixonNovels.com. Thank you for listening to this week's self publishing journeys. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.